0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and The same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills, when she had a stroke, and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. Well now it's time to turn the pages back to December of 1928. The company was then owned by Pitcairn Aviation. Harold Pitcairn was its founder and owner. Back in December of 1928, a story was written about the airmail connection to Florida, and it reads, Pittman and numerous city officials and prominent Mi- Miamians had come out to the airport to participate in the send-off. All the flying service operators in the Miami District join in a formation escorting pilot Shamil on a flight over the city of Miami. Upon his return from this flight, The mail was loaded into the plane with numerous photographers and newsreel men taking pictures of every one of importance, including a group of Seminole Indians who sent a letter to President Calvin Coolidge asking for federal aid in controlling the wind tides of Lake Okeechobee. Mayor Sewell Sewell, sent a letter to Mayor Walker of New York, inviting the latter to attend the Air Meet and Exposition in Miami on January 7th, 8th, and 9th. At 10.50 a.m., Mr. Ray got in from Jacksonville, and as soon as his ship was fueled and loaded with mail, he and Pilot Shamil took off for Jacksonville with a total of 290 pounds of air mail. They arrived in Jacksonville at 2.40 p.m., just a few minutes after Pilot Stone arrived with the delayed mail from Atlanta. With all the active mail wings in Jacksonville for a few minutes, the ceremonies attendant upon the arrival and departure of the first planes were witnessed by a large assembly, including Mayor Alsop, Postmaster Ross, and City Commissioners Imusen and Herlong. While the various notables were being photographed, the mail was transferred from Pilot Stone's plane and together with the southbound mail pouch from Jacksonville was put in a mail wing piloted by Donald Johnston. Pilot Fred Kahn, who had been assigned to duty on this run, but he, has, he was temporarily laid up with a severe attack of, of grip. Pilot Johnston, whose regular assignment is that a reserve pilot on the Richmond, New York Division, took off at 2.45 p.m. with the mail from Miami. Twenty minutes later, Pilot Stone again took, the air, took to the air on his return trip to Atlanta, getting enough uh, through this time with no difficulty to arrive in Atlanta at 6.25 p.m. The last chapter of the record of the opening day was written at the Miami airport. Pilot Johnston, southbound from Jacksonville, bucked a strong headwind as far as Melbourne where he decided to come down for gas. As Melbourne is not a regular stop on the route, it took him an hour to get his tank refilled. Fortunately the wind had died down so that When he took off again at 5.25 p.m., he had clear flying into the gathering dust. The phosphorescence of the breaking waves made a perfect guide for his trip down the coast. As the Miami field is as yet lighted only with a revolving beacon, some red fuses were procured from the railroad company and set out to form a T on the center of the field. When the hum of the mail wing motor was heard, field manager Shambliss and his assistant, A.W. Hankey, lighted the fuses while the night attendant at the airport swept the runway with the beacon light and then focused it on the landing circle. Pilot Johnston dropped a flare and glided into a perfect landing. You may be sure that he was cordially greeted by Mr. Childs and the staff at the field. The last mail plane was in. Once more, the airmail pilots had beaten the hazards of wind and rain and fog. The airmail went through. As a post remark of this uh, story that I just read, it's interesting to note that uh, two of the Jacksonville's airports were named after the uh, commissioners that uh, were present at the time the airplane flew in and that was Commissioner Imason and Herlong. So we had an, Imason Field was Jacksonville's airport until around 1965 when Jacksonville International was christened and Herlong is an airport uh, just to the west of the city.
2: This winter, you need all the
0: summer you can get. The sunshine, to warm my soul and body. With Eastern
2: Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent, or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern. The wings of man. How many times have you moved in your life, in your career? Military families often move many, many times during a uh, military career, and other jobs require frequent movements also. But This article is entitled Moving Day by Captain Don Witt, and it tells the opening of Eastern's Atlanta Midfield Terminal. After 14 years of planning, impressive construction, and $700 million dollars, we had a first-class Atlanta midfield terminal. At the time, it was said to be the largest airport terminal in the world. On September 21, 1980, EAL flight 845 from Denver was due as the first scheduled airline flight to arrive to the midfield terminal. The flight was expected to arrive shortly after the terminal opened at 4 a.m. Three hours prior, at 1 a.m., the formal terminal building was officially closed. So, for three hours in the middle of the night, no aircraft could move in or out of either complex. Our people suspected Brand X would be up to some shenanigans, attempting to get one of its flights in ahead of ours and ace us out of first arrival recognition. An inbound Brand X flight was scheduled to arrive in Atlanta around midnight. As the plot thickened, its ploy was to maneuver around this so that after landing at midnight, Instead of taxiing to the old terminal as everyone, including air traffic and control, expected, the airplane would park on a taxi strip between both terminals. There it would stay until the old terminal closed at 0100, and then request taxi instructions to the new terminal. If all went as hoped, this flight would be the first one to arrive at the midfield terminal. Instead, the tower advised that the new terminal would not open until 0400, and the flight would have to remain parked and wait for the official opening it's my guess that passengers must have strenuously objected to this program read that as being close to mutiny because the crew was compelled to contact their company and ask for instructions a bus was ordered and directed to drive out to the airplane to rescue the passengers who were then bused to the O terminal by 0400 a very festive crowd was waiting at the gate for their arrival of Eastern 845. Captain Distel, crew and passengers arrived amidst running and shouting by greeters and newspeople. They were running and shouting because they were waiting at the wrong gate. Remember the old gate change at the last minute trick, also known as the gate and switch trick? The arrival had more of the reception of a winning sports team returning from a championship game than the landing of a scheduled flight. Everything was loud, bright, cameras flashed, People chatted excitedly. There was a wonderful feeling of well-being. EAL had other first and last for the big event. EA-452 to Seattle and EA-957 to San Juan simultaneously blocked out at 0055, only five minutes before the old terminal closed. They were the last flights to depart from that building. At midfield, Eastern 74 was the first to depart at 0540 for Charlotte. It was the end of an era. The transition was officially completed. Don't mention the word move to most people who have moved, or to the eastern folks involved in the midfield move. The latter group lived through the relocation to end all relocations. Nine days before the event occurred, the company hired outside contractors to start hauling stuff from the old to the new terminal. When the old terminal closed in the middle of the night, there was a mad dash to rush more items across the airport to the midfield location. Necessary things such as wheelchairs, furniture, ticket stock, papers, forms, airplanes, and more boxes. If you've ever moved from one home to another, you remember the accumulation of endless important things. Multiply that by many hundreds and you will understand what a monumental task it was to transfer operations across the airport. One runway closed at 0130 to permit the last-minute moving of essential items. Logistically, it was like a military convoy with every available vehicle pulled into service to transport anything that wasn't fastened down. All the headlights in the dark made it look like a very busy highway. The Eastern Mechanics had their work cut out for them as they taxied 16 overnight aircraft to the new gates other employees had to ready these airplanes for early departures. The in and out flight routine could not be interrupted. Even though the airline people had moved into their new home, the structure was still a couple of months from completion. For some time, construction workers would be underfoot along with lots of dust and piles of debris. Not all of the whizbang automatic apparat- apparatuses worked as advertised when cranked up for the first time. They required lots of last minute adjustments and gnashing of teeth. When employees faced a problem, supervisors encouraged resourceful, independent action. Everyone simply had to wing it. There were locked doors with no keys, missing directional signs, a thousand details that tested our ingenuity. Passengers realized that employees were doing their best under difficult circumstances and thankfully most of them rolled with the punches. There seemed to be gremlins at work in unexpected places. The super new automatic baggage sorting system, $22 million worth, was great when it finally worked. At first, it seemed to fight back or give us the silent treatment. After lots of tinkering and fussing by untold experts, the many parts and pieces declared a truce and began to work. The whole process was an exercise in lessons learned and humility. A number of shops and restaurants were not yet open, creating a land office business atmosphere for those who were operational. The United Service Organization's Assistance Center for Traveling Military Personnel had a ribbon-cutting ceremony conducted by Mayor Jackson and General Ross. The center, staffed by local civilian volunteers, went into immediate action, providing assistance and support to our weary military travelers. As passengers used the Midfield Terminal in later years, they never realized that the neat, orderly place they were seeing had been a scene of seemingly unorganized chaos on opening day. Well, we kept the secret. One day, the terminal finally worked exactly as it was supposed to. In retrospect, I vividly remember taxing a DC-3 on a one-runway airport up to a small wooden-frame terminal building, where a single agent ran the whole show. These were the beginning scenes of what would later become our modern age. Large, complex structure. Our new terminal was a city in itself. In my wildest dreams, I could not have envisioned the Midfield Terminal. If any of you listeners out there remember the opening of that new Midfield Terminal, why don't you drop a uh, email to Captain Neil Holland? with your uh, memories of the opening of that terminal.
0: Eastern is the shuttle airline.
2: It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. I wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to.
0: And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd I'd go to uh, any of the other uh,
2: airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements.
1: Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus.
2: You've gone from a a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Instrument flying is a way of life for commercial airline pilots. This article is from the book Repartee. It's title is instrument flight is for the birds or how to duck the high cost of instruments. Basic rules for the cat and duck method of flight under the hood are fairly known and are of course extremely simple. Number one, place a live cat on the cockpit floor. Because a cat always remains upright, he or she can be used in lieu of a needle and ball. Merely watch to see which way the cat leans to determine if a wing is low and if so, which one. Number two, the duck is used for the instrument approach and landing. Because of the fact that any sensible duck will refuse to fly under instrument conditions, it is only necessary to hurl your duck out of the plane and follow her to the ground. There are some limitations to the cat and duck method, but by rigidly adhering to the following checklist, a degree of success will be achieved which will surely startle you, your passengers, and maybe even an itinerant tower operator. So here's the checklist for the cat and duck method. Number one, get a wide awake cat. Most cats do not want to stand up all the time. It may be necessary to get a large fierce dog to carry in the cockpit to keep the cat at attention. Number two, make sure your cat is clean. Dirty cats will spend all their time washing. Trying to follow a washing cat usually results in a tight snap roll followed by an inverted spin, flat that is, You can see this is very unsanitary. Number three, old cats are best. Young cats have nine lives, but an old used up cat with only one left has just as much to lose as you do and will be more dependable. Number four, avoid stray cats. Try to get one with a good pedigree. Your veterinarian can help you locate a cat with a good character or try any good breeding farm or if in a city, try a reputable cat house. Number five, beware of cowardly ducks. If the duck discovers that you are using the cat to stay upright, she will refuse to leave without the cat. Ducks are no better on instruments than you are. Number six, be sure the duck has good eyesight. Nearsighted ducks sometimes fail to realize they are on the gauges and will go flogging off into the nearest hill. Very nearsighted ducks will not realize they have been thrown out and will descend to the ground in a sitting position. This maneuver is quite difficult to follow in an airplane. Number seven, use land loving ducks. It's very discouraging to break out and find yourself on final for a rice paddy, particularly if there are duck hunters around. Duck hunters suffer from temporary insanity when they are sitting in freezing weather in their blinds and will shoot at anything that flies. Number eight, choose your duck carefully. Many water birds look very much alike, and if you are not careful, you may get confused between ducks and geese. Geese are very competitive. Instrument flyers, but are very seldom interested in going the way you want to go. If your duck heads for off for Canada or Mexico, then you may be sure you begin with a goose. Well, that's how to uh, duck the high cost of instruments Eastern Airlines.
0: This story from The Wings of Man is by Alexa Conway, and it's titled Two Famous Passengers and The Movie Star. Bob Hope was very loyal to Eastern. When he flew with us, he was the early board, first aisle seat, where he immediately fell asleep while we boarded. He had a grueling schedule for 1976 for the Bicentennial Celebrations. We brought him to Washington, D.C., and then flew him back to Los Angeles, time and time again. Once, after my announcements and securing the cabin for takeoff and picking up first-class glassware, he was still sleeping. Upright, but without his seatbelt fastened, which was unusual. I monitored him constantly. Finally, hating to disturb his rest, I approached him quietly and slowly. He didn't budge or blink. He was breathing heavily, so I knew he was fine, but he had to have his seatbelt fastened. I watched his face closely as I began to slowly pull the seatbelt apart wide and fastened it. Now I began to pull it slowly, tighter. I was so focused I didn't realize the entire cabin was watching, realizing what I needed to do. As I got the buckle buckle about two inches from his waist, he suddenly grabbed both my hands saying, my wife will never believe this, laughing at me. Instantly, the entire first class cabin began to laugh and exclaim to each other, I had to go clean myself. The next story was about the Reverend Billy Graham who flew with us regularly also. He was always a treat to have on board. On a flight that was consistently bumpy, he and his wife were in my last row. The air became so turbulent that my crew was told to clear service items and buckle into their jump seats. As I went one last time through coach and into first class, the weather became serious. I immediately sat on an armrest in the seat in front of Reverend Graham. My cabin was full. A passenger across from the Reverend and Mrs. Graham was so shaken by the weather. I was holding on to the seat, just chatting until I felt I could continue getting to my jump seat. We hit a clear pocket and dropped a bit. Drinks were spilling everywhere. The man looked at Reverend Graham, grimacing, frightened, and said, Well, at least I know we're safe with you on board. Reverend Graham just smiled and said, Oh, no, my friend, I am most anxious to meet my maker at any moment. I welcome the thought. I thought the passenger was going to throw up. And the final story about the unknown movie star. The long flight was from San Juan to Atlanta. I was training a new hire in first class. She was all grins. She was so excited to be flying with Eastern. We had a four-cart service. That meant cocktails and nuts, hot hors d'oeuvres, and then a choice of dinner, choice of dessert, cordials, coffee, and cheeses. We would prepare everything and serve the food from a cart covered in linens, while two other flight attendants did the same thing on the opposite side of the cabin. There was this big shot in the middle section of six rows across, two by two in my first class cabin. He thought the sun rose and set because he wanted it to do that. We had completed most of the service. Two of us were on each side of the cart so the new hire could learn the whole procedure. The dessert was ice cream sundaes. We served hot fudge, strawberry or caramel topping with nuts and, of course, whipped cream. We were almost finished. The newbie picked up one whipped cream can and shook it, but when she did, a little bit of whipped cream flew out and landed on his head. She was so mortified, she grabbed her service towel and began to dab at his head. Until then, he had no idea anything had happened, and when she realized she was wiping his head, he moved and grabbed at his head. When he moved, his toupee came off in her towel. She screamed, seeing this big black hairy thing in her hand, and threw it. The hair flew over to the next seat, falling exactly on the tray of some unsuspecting woman in the last last row, I can only imagine how frightening that was. It looked like some huge black hairy bug of some sort. When the woman screamed and tried to jump up, she knocked everything off her tray into the aisle and onto herself. My newbie was begging the guy to forgive her and trying to explain. I had to leave her to tend to the woman on the other side of the cabin. I retrieved the napkin and its contents from her area. When the man stormed into the lavatory with the napkin, the poor woman calmed herself. We all saw how funny this whole thing had been, and everyone began to laugh. We couldn't help ourselves. However, I knew that when he came out, we couldn't be laughing. I went to busy myself, and we couldn't look anyone in the eye for fear of bursting out laughing again. When Mr. Movie Star finally came out, everyone looked the other way. He was steaming. He was flying with someone we presumed was his his agent. I felt sorry for that man. You just never know what might happen on a flight. It might only have been the only time he would have preferred being unknown.
1: On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's
2: Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in Cabin 2 just for discount travelers. For a very low $149
1: each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and
2: something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. Does the name Johnny Ray ring a bell in Eastern's history? Johnny Ray was Eastern's first employee in an article written by Isabel C. Rodriguez. Those of us who are fortunate to have met him remember Johnny is a thin, neatly dressed man who walked around the Miami maintenance hangars with cigar in hand, wearing his signature straw hat and a big smile on his face. John C. Johnny Ray was hired by Eddie Rickenbacker on June 21, 1925 and was first at many things. According to daughter Eleanor, Johnny's employee number is 1, if he was the first employee hired by Eastern. Johnny was the first recipient of the famed hat and the ring pin, denoting 20 years of service with the company. He was once the company's general superintendent of maintenance, and although he retired in 1952, almost every Wednesday thereafter he faithfully visited the base. At a special ceremony on May 6, 1981, Eastern named the Miami Engine Service Center, the John C. Ray Engine Service Center, in his, in his honor. So that's the story of Johnny Ray, Eastern's first employee, hired by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker.
0: Eastern is the shuttle airline.
2: It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. I wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to.
0: And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other
2: uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements.
1: Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus.
2: You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer
0: to a limousine ride.
2: Come they did, in the form of the magnificent Lockheed 1011, names were changed again as switches became switchlights. Sitting in the cockpit, so far off the ground, we all wondered how in the world we could learn to flare for landing. The Lockheed designers, in their infinite wisdom, knew that aviators had to have a sense of feel to fly the big plane, so they designed artificial feel into it. Connecting cables with conventional boosts could manipulate such larger larger control surfaces in such an enormous aircraft. Direct hydraulic drives were needed, but when the pilot operated the controls, he was only opening the valve. They solved the matter by simply installing springs on the cockpit controls, which would take the slop out. Thus taking the slop out of the controls, just as the controls became more rigid in the speedboat when it increases speed. With the help of the marvelous flight simulators in Eastern's training department, we mastered the ability to flare. The redundancy built in the electrical, hydraulic, air conditioning and power systems inspired confidence. The sophisticated autopilot and the fantastic Omega, Omega navigation system made the Lockheed 1011 a dream to fly. The Rolls Royce engines were so big, they took a long time to start, so our pilots soon devised a way of speeding things up. A glance in the maintenance log would reveal which engine had the least amount of time on it and would be the easiest to start. This would be the be the one to start first, using the lesser air supply from the auxiliary power unit. Once it was up to speed and supplying the stronger air supply, the remaining two engines started simultaneously and much faster. Usually the captain and co-pilot would have a race to see who could start his engines first. Often an audience of ground personnel from other airlines would show up for this demonstration of the standardization program developed by Eastern over a number of years. This made it possible for a crew of three perfect strangers to come together and conduct the flight without a pre-flight briefing because everyone knew what to do and what was expected of him. At the same time, it was not so restrictive as to keep one from displaying their individual style. Cockpit discipline became fun because it made the operation so much easier. Now, Eastern operated in weather conditions formerly unmanageable. Tower personnel at the Seattle-Tacoma Airport would do a double-take when Eastern's Lockheed 1011 approached from the north r- runway in a hard sideslip when the wind was strong out of the west. They could not believe such a large airplane behaving in such a conventional manager. This was all due to the expertise of the Lockheed designers being able to understand the problems facing the pilot. Additionally, the Eastern Airlines flight attendants, were thanked for their suggestions in the design of the cabin and as a result, the in-flight service was superb. The ovens, beverages, serving carts, and in-flight service gear were all located on a floor below the passenger cabin and everything arrived on elevators. This left more aisle space for the flight attendants to perform their duties. The Lockheed L-11 Whisper Liner, as we called it, also became a favorite of the passengers because of its huge size, luxurious appointments, and smooth landings and takeoffs.
0: Brian, look! There's new no kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing
1: 727 jet! Look how high the tail is! 34 feet! Look where they put the jets! In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound.
0: Where does it fly to?
1: I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburg, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepare it as you like it. Eastern 727 jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern.
2: Flying an airplane normally takes a lot of skill. You've got to have faith in a machine. You've got to have faith in your instruments. But in 1919, the U.S. Army Air Service came up with some flying regulations. Here we go. Number one, don't take the machine into the air unless you're satisfied it will fly. Number two, never leave the ground with the motor leaking. Number three, in taking off, look at the ground and the air. Number four, pilots should carry hankies in a handy position to wipe off goggles. Number five, riding on the steps, wings, or tail of a machine is prohibited. Number six. Do not trust altitude instruments. Number seven, if you see another machine near you, get out of the way. Number eight, hedge hopping will not be tolerated. Number nine, if flying against the wind and you wish to turn and fly with the wind, don't make the sharp turn near the ground. You might crash. Number ten, aviators will not wear wear spurs while flying. Number eleven, you must not take off or land closer than 50 feet to the hangar. Number 12, it's advisable to carry a good pair of cutting pliers in a position both where both pilot and passenger can reach them in case of an accident. And number 13, joy rides will not be given to civilians. All seems very sensible to me.
0: worship the sun. Today, in Acapulco, what was once a primitive religion has become a fine art. Acapulco. Prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation. Call Eastern or your travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought
2: you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. Mm -hmm. This story is not exactly an Eastern Airlines story, but there is a connection. If you've ever been to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., you would be familiar with this man's work. This is an article about Dr. Paul E. Garber, he addressed the Retired Eastern Pilots Association in 1981, and this is a, a, a summary of what Dr. Garber had to say. Paul Edward Garber, born August 31st, 1899, died September 23rd, 1992, was the first head of the National Air Museum of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. With his work and effort, the most complete collection of historical aircraft in the world was gathered and preserved. It contains the sole survivors of many interesting historical aircraft types. Garber was, was born and spent his childhood in Washington, D.C. and had clear memories of the Wright brothers' flight trials at Fort Myer in 1908. At the age of 18, he joined the Army. During World War I, he was transferred from the D.C. National Guard to Aviation Service and the Signal Corps. During World War II, he was commander of the U.S. Navy and later was in the NATO reserves. World War I ended before he had started the planned flight training. After the war, he took a job as a ground crewman and messenger with the Postal Air Mail Service. About that time, his desire to help the development of aviation by preserving its past. In 1920, he joined the Smithsonian and for the next 72 years work for the preservation of the world aviation heritage. In 1946, President Harry S. Truman created the National Air Museum as a separate entity of the Smithsonian. Garber played a key role in the process and was assigned as a curator to the museum. The present National Air and Space Museum building opened in 1976. Most important, Garber, as first curator and devotee, helped to assemble the most impressive collection of historic aircraft in the world for the institution. The storage of that collection was not much of a problem prior to World War II. Virtually everything that Garber collected was on display at the Arts and Industries Building or on loan to another museum. But when he returned from service as a naval officer, he faced an entirely new set of problems. General Henry H. Hap Arnold, commander of the U.S. Army Air Forces, presented the Smithsonian with the collection of U.S. and enemy aircraft. When Paul Garber accepted responsibility for this vast collection, it was stored in an abandoned airplane factory in suburban Chicago, now the site of O'Hare Airport. The U.S. Navy had a similar collection of historic aircraft in storage for the Smithsonian at Norfolk, Virginia. The crisis came with the Korean War. When the U.S. Air Force needed the factory and began to force the Smithsonian out the door. Determined to safely relocate the treasures to the Washington area, Garber searched in vain for empty warehouse space in the vicinity of the nation's capital. He then persuaded a pilot friend to assist him in conducting an aerial survey of the Maryland and Virginia suburbs from the cockpit of a Piper J-3 Cub. His search revealed 21 acres of woodland and suitland, The National Park and Planning Commission, which controlled the land, was more than pleased to turn it over to the Smithsonian in 1952. When I first went out there and walked around, Garber later commented, my only companions were the bullfrogs and mockingbirds. There was no budget for this project. I had to scrounge, he recalled with pride. His powers of persuasion were legendary. Army engineers at nearby Fort Belvoir provided a bulldozer to clear trees and brush from the site. Garber persuaded a local contractor to donate any excess cement remaining in the trucks at the end of the workday. Navy officials agreed to provide, at no cost, the first of the prefabricated buildings that would soon dock the site. He said, I'll beg or do whatever is necessary to get the old, famous airplanes for display at the museum. Paulie Garber spent his later years giving programs and relating the stories about the beginning and progress of flying history. He came to be a leading, fig- leading figure of the Smithsonian Kite Festival, Smithsonian's annual kite flying, kite flying celebration held on the National Mall in downtown Washington. He was also instrumental in getting the D.C. law changed. Previously it had been illegal to fly a kite on the Mall. He was also a talented aircraft model maker the Smithsonian's Paul E. Garber Preservation, Restoration, and Storage Facility was named for him before his death. He died in his sleep on September the 23rd, 1992, at the age of 93. So there you have the story of the beginnings of the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum. We should all be thankful to Dr. Paul Garber for his foresight.
1: Memories of a Great Airline have reached the end of our broadcast tonight. We hope you enjoyed the stories as told by the Eastern family and read by Linda and Harry Lindquist and me, Neil Holland. The stories will continue with next week's broadcast of memories of a great airline, Eastern, as told by its people. If you have memories you would like presented on the air, we hope you will send them to us so they can be read and heard by the Eastern family. You can even record them on your computer's voice recorder and send them to us, and we'll include them on a future show. Send via email to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's e Neil N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. It must be in an MP3 or a WAV file to work with our broadcast. These are the formats that most computers use. Also, we hope you will tell your friends about these broadcasts, and if you miss one, you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and select from the episode's archive. Our Eastern theme music tells us it's about time to say goodnight, Eastern family. From Linda, Harry, and me, we'll see you at the gate next week. Goodnight, Eastern family.